You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's session of Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio, and I'm Ron Bachman. If you've been listening to this program on America's Web Radio, you know that we've been talking about health insurance reform. We've also talked about various forms of health care reform and, of course, the coronavirus. The difference between health insurance reform and health care reform is lost on some people. Health insurance is how we finance health care that we get from doctors and hospitals. They're entirely different topics. And my core belief is that you cannot get to the kind of health care that you want unless you have good health insurance to finance that care. Of course, if you're uninsured, you can go to the emergency room. You may or may not get the best care. You may or may not have access to the hospitals and doctors, the specialists that you would want. So our focus on the national picture of where we go during this election year in a debate on health reform, what I really want to focus on is what we ought to be doing first, and that is health insurance reform. So we've laid out a whole pattern and design of how we can actually get to a free market. And the program that I've been talking about, I've given the title The Secrets of Health Insurance Reform, because there are a number of secrets that the insiders are keeping from the general public keeping from you, the listeners here in this audience. And I think it's important for you to know what's possible, what could be, and what's being kept from you. There's no reason why we can't have the kind of health insurance reform to get the health care that we need. It's just that there are many people benefiting from the status quo. The insurance company, the the lobbyists, the lawyers, And the politicians are all in kind of cahoots working against the consumer. So I want to talk about, in any kind of health reform, there are three major issues that need to be addressed to be sure that your health reform is, in fact, likely to be successful. It's access to care. It's the quality of care that you get. And it's the cost of care. And they're all interrelated And one of the secrets is that most of those insiders think you can only get two of the three. Well, that's not true in any other kind of product or service that you want. You can't say that, well, I can have access to this kind of a product and I want good quality product, but the cost isn't going to be very effective. Of course, you have differences in cost depending upon the quality that you want just as you would have a different kind of cost depending upon the level of coverage that you might want in your insurance policy or whether in your care you're going to get a an X-ray, an MRI, a CAT scan, a PET scan, whatever the different is. Of course, there's going to be differences in cost. But let's take a look at those three issues because we in previous sessions have outlined the structure of what I've called personalized health insurance, that is, health insurance that meets your needs, your family needs. You are a unique individual. A one-size-fits-all insurance doesn't work for most of us. 
We need something that's unique to our needs. We may need a very comprehensive plan. We may want an HMO. We may want to get coverage through our employer. We may want temporary insurance. There's all sorts of different types of insurance, and we ought to be have the right to get those kinds of products. We may want an account-based plan with a health savings account. Why shouldn't we be allowed to have all those? Well, let's talk about usually what's the key issue on most people's minds, and it is the affordability question. After all, Obamacare is really the Patient Protection and Affordability Act. We usually call it the ACA, which is for the Affordable Care Act, for short. So let's talk about affordability, because there are, again, a number of secrets as we go through this Secrets of Health Insurance Reform presentation over these past few weeks and probably for the next couple of weeks. What most people don't know is that most hospitals and doctors have no idea what their costs of care are. Hospitals, for example, use something they call Charge Master as a basis for charging for their services, what they negotiate with. That's usually the starting point because the Charge Masters are so unrealistic. Nobody pays the Charge Master except the uninsured. And that's another secret there that if you don't have any discounts, you wind up paying this outrageous Charge Master. Well, what is a Charge Master? Well, Charge Master schedules that the hospitals use are not related to any actual procedural cost. They don't do an internal cost analysis of what things actually are costing the hospital so that they can set up a charge or a fee for that service to anybody using it. They don't do that. Charge masters are essentially made-up fees. Somebody just puts down something on paper and puts it into the computer system at the hospitals. It used to be 20, 30 years ago that charge masters were very close after years of sort of juggling them through, very close to what the hospitals would actually charge or send out as the fee for reimbursement from insurance companies. And in the early 1990s, people started to negotiate with hospitals. And at most, you'd get a 5, 10, maybe 15% discount off of the charge master. But to show you how outrageous charge masters have become because they're so artificial, today, if you get something called an explanation of benefits, I challenge you to take a look at any service that you've gotten from a hospital and look at that charge master and see what they've wanted to charge versus what was accepted by the insurance company. I've looked at that in my own situation, and the actual payment by the insurance company was about 10% of what that charge master said the hospital wanted to be paid for. But the hospital negotiated away from that. So now instead of a 5 10 or 15% discount, hospitals are giving 80 to 90% discounts off of these artificial charge masters. So they're essentially made-up fees. Now, why would a hospital do that? Well, many of the hospitals out there are not-for-profit. And if they're not-for-profit, They're providing various services to the community, uh, covering the uninsured, for example. And so they can make reports to the county commissioners or to the hospital associations or to reporters looking into it that they've given an enormous amount of charity care services to the general public. But the reality is they haven't. 
They haven't given that service. That's a made-up number. And there are actually a number of lawsuits because the only people who wind up paying the charge master are people who are uninsured and don't have an insurance company who's negotiated that 80 or 90% discount. So it's very unfair to the people who are most in need of having reasonable charges. In addition to that kind of craziness that's going on in the private sector part of the costs of health care, Government programs like Medicare and Medicaid pay hospitals based on another artificial schedule called ICD-10. Now, what happens there is that the hospitals under Medicare, for example, get a set fee for somebody going in a hospital for a certain diagnosis. A DRG is another term. Again, all these alphabet soup things kind of get confused for the general public and just make insiders sound like they know what they're talking about. But a hospital will get a fixed amount of money for a certain diagnosis that says, here's the average length of stay, and so they get a fixed amount of money. If the hospital can be efficient and get that person out in time, then they can actually make money on that fixed fee. If it takes longer, then the hospital would lose money. So the whole idea was to encourage hospitals to get people out efficiently and then get some savings on that lower number of days that they would stay versus the average. But what happens if somebody stays in the hospital a really long time? Does the hospital lose money? No, of course not. What you know is that the government and the hospitals have been working together, and what the hospitals have is something called an outlier payment. So if somebody stays in a lot longer than what they're supposed to stay, the hospital can apply for an outlier outlier reimbursement. And that outlier reimbursement It's got very favorable treatments to the hospital, of course. And so the hospitals really don't lose any money if somebody stays in there a long time, for Medicare as an example. Now, doctors are just as bad. Doctors charge based on something called a CPT code. The American Medical Association creates the CPT codes and the amount of money the doctors are going to be reimbursed. Talking about the fox watching the chickens. Well, the American Medical Association creates this proprietary fee schedule for what doctors charge. There's no public input. There's no competition. uh, That's that's structured in this. And there's no free market forces. They're just all ignored. So did you know, for example, that doctors cannot charge less than Medicare? Because the government has something called a most favored nation status. So even if the CPT code is put out, which is bought by the federal government, it's not public information. You can't go online and get it yourself. You can't go online and check as an individual. The federal government pays the American Association for this, American Association of uh, American Medical Association, and then they use that to reimburse uh, for Medicare patients. And then everything is sort of based off of that. Even commercial contracts are usually based off of the um, um, Medicare reimbursement. So in the private market, they might pay 10 or 20% above uh, Medicare, and that keeps hospitals happy because Medicare usually doesn't cover enough of their, of their costs. So you have cost shifting that goes on that the private market pays more than what the government does because the government's not paying enough to keep the hospitals as solvent and as profitable as they want. So if a doctor was actually able to go, say, electronic and online and not have to fill out all the paperwork or 
didn't even do the reimbursement request that they said, okay, you, you have a claim, you, you submitted to Medicare. I don't want to deal with all that paperwork because that costs too much money. You submit it, and I'll give you a big discount for doing that. The discount cannot mean that the doctor charges less than Medicare. Now, they could in many cases because they know their costs would be that much less, but they don't. So it's an insider's game using fancy formulas and mathematics to price fix and rip off the American consumers. In addition, you have third-party reimbursements. that really somebody else is paying the bill. The insurers, the government, or the employer is paying the real bill, not you, the consumer, the customer, the patient. And that distorts normal customer influences and eliminates normal market forces for transparency and competition. That's why nobody knows what things actually cost. And it's only recently that President Trump has required some posting of prices so that people can actually compare. So that's this first segment of this hour, talking about cost. Now, I'm going to talk about, given all that that's working against you as a consumer, where do you go from here? How do you control the cost? How do you lower your insurance premiums, given that this is the environment that you're working in, where you're not able to directly influence what the government is paying and how the hospitals and the insurance companies are working together against your own benefit. So come on back after the commercial, and we're going to talk about what you can actually do now that you know the problems. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're on Healthcare Insight. And what we're going to be talking about today is what you can actually do to change the cost of your insurance, both as an individual and being a participant in a larger group of similar risks. Now, what we just outlined in the last segment was how the insurance company, the lobbyists, the government, the third-party reimbursement system for paying of health care claims actually is working against you. That's an insider's game that you're not invited to that game, and they're working against you at every turn. So given these forces working against you, you still need lower insurance premiums. So until we get to health care, care reform, which would be 
another big topic that we'll talk about in the future. How do we get lower health insurance premiums? How can you influence insurance premiums? Well, premiums are made up of medical procedure costs times utilization. Now, utilization may be sort of an insider term, but it means how many times do you use that medical procedure? So utilization really is how often do you go to the doctor's office? How often do you use um, labs, x-rays, all sorts of technology? How many times do you go to the hospital? So consumers may not be able to directly influence the cost of a service, at least not yet. That's not what we're talking about yet because we just explained all the insider processing that's going on around the costs. But consumers can affect the number of times that you use a service. Now, one of the real keys to this whole concept of personalized health insurance is that you have a right. You really do. You have a right to know and be participating with a group of people who are of a similar risk as you are. And if you do that, the good risks have some benefits and the bad risks are probably the ones that benefit the most, the way we've designed and structured. If you're in a good risk category, you and the rest of the people in that group are probably doing things like watching your diet, your exercise, you're probably not um, uh, engaged in alcoholism or drug use, uh, you know your your biometrics of body mass index, uh, waist size, um, A1C levels, blood pressure, cholesterol, all those things. So you're participating in a group that's trying to be healthy and keep yourself out of the doctor's office, off of medications, or if you're on medications, you're doing it to stabilize your condition. Those are risk factors that you ought to benefit from, and the pool will benefit from having lower premiums because the pool of customers have a similar attitude about maintaining their health, following the doctor's orders, and doing the right things, both medically and in lifestyle. So if you use medical service only when they're really needed and you try to avoid and prevent those from happening, you can have lower cost insurance. And then if you have an account-based plan, you can get more individual rewards. So the pool of of better risks working together will have lower premiums because the the broad group that you're sharing, whatever claims you might have over, you're sharing risk. That's what insurance is all about. But in this case, you're sharing risk over a pool of similar risk profiles. But if as an individual, you can do even more. As an individual, if you have an account-based plan like a, health savings account or maybe a health reimbursement arrangement, uh, you can get rewards and incentives added to your account that can also be used to lower your premiums or at least to offset some of the cost-sharing features you might have like deductibles and co-insurance and and, uh, co-payments. So lower insurance premiums are the real reason personalized health insurance uses that risk segmentation as the basis of insurance so that people who are doing the right things can get lower premiums. Now, what if you are in high risk? Well, in the high risk, you're going to benefit the most because in the high risk pool, we've been able to segment people to give them the most help to get them back on their feet. 
we're not shunning them off to the side and saying, well, you got bad health care risks, whether it was congenital, whether it was an accident, a disease, uh, the maladies of life, bad choices, whatever it is. doesn't matter. We're going to help you. We're going to give you all the support and services you need to recover or at least stabilize your condition. And you're going to get lower premiums as well because those are the folks that we're going to subsidize with some government funds, state and or federal funds, because their costs are going to be higher without such subsidies, so the subsidies will help lower them. Now, we're not going to do like Obamacare and give subsidies to everybody in order to gain their political favor. This is for people who are really in need, and that's why we need to segment. And, you know, we're going through a current time here with this coronavirus. And what are we saying that we need to do to help solve the coronavirus problem? We need to segment the high-risk population, the older folks with comorbid conditions, and let's treat them differently. Let's give them all the help and support. Let's find the hot spots, and whether it's in nursing homes or just communities that are close together that have a lot of older folks, a lot of comorbid conditions, regardless of age, we're talking about segmenting risk in the solution of coronavirus. So if you take that same example, what we could do with health insurance in general is to segment risks and help each of those segments based upon what their real needs are. And if we do that, we can have a much more efficient system because we will lower utilization and give the benefit back to the consumers that are doing the right things. And lower premiums for them means lower premiums for small group insurance, means more small group insurance companies will actually Sign up for insurance. Many of them don't today. Only about 30% of groups under 25 lives even have insurance because the premiums are too high. So if we segment out those with high risks into what I call an impaired health support group of plans, then everybody else can have lower premiums and employers are more likely to create a group insurance program for their employees. So, Keep in mind, you have a right. You have a right to purchase insurance associated with good or bad risk. Regardless of what your situation is, you have a right to have that pool of people that are similar to you. And we're not talking about segmenting such that there is enormous discrimination between the different groups, that you've got 20 different groups that you can get into. We're talking about two or three segments good risks, the bad risks, and then people who are good risks but are needed some financial support. That's the way we had to do it. Not one size fits all as Obamacare or Obamacare doesn't give you choices and options of plans that make any sense. And they just throw everybody together and you can't really get the rewards and incentives you would like. So nobody wants to talk about this because if you talk about segmenting people out, all of a sudden somebody thinks that you're stigmatizing Individuals. No, you're not stigmatizing just with the coronavirus. You're not stigmatizing the older folks. They know they need help and support. They know that they need some extra isolation. People in nursing homes welcome the idea of testing the people who are walking in, of testing people who are already in there. And we don't get in a situation like happened in New York where people with coronavirus were actually told to go back to nursing homes. Because they want to be stigmatized? Come on. What happened was too many people died in the facilities they went back to. But, you know, sometimes you can't talk about segmentation because it's not politically correct. 
Well, in this case, it is politically correct to do the right thing so that we can all have lower premiums and we can actually get the help and care to people who need it. So keep in mind that lower medical costs through lower utilization means lower insurance costs. It's one of the secrets they don't tell you, that if you actually lower your utilization, you lower your insurance costs. And if you have the right kinds of products by doing that, you can get rewards and incentives that create an even better situation from the cost perspective. So here's how the pooling of poor risk in the impaired health support will lower the cost for everyone. As I've explained several times, the personal health insurance places individual and small group uninsurables into this impaired health support coverage set of plans. That means that the remaining insureds are in a pool of better risk with lower expected costs, therefore lower premiums. Now, how much lower and how many people would be shifted into this impaired health support coverage? Well, again, in the media and many writings and people interested in maintaining a status quo, they don't tell you the truth about this. But the truth is only about 1% of the members, 1% of the population generates about 20% of the costs. And that's the group, at least at a minimum, I would identify as the impaired health support coverage. And I think we may be able to take 2 or 3% and put them into impaired health support and subsidize them. But people who are trying to dismiss this concept say, no, 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 it takes 8% of the people who are uninsurable. I don't believe that for a minute. The data doesn't show that. If you take a look at studies that were done by the Employee Benefit Research Institute, they show that 1% of the population generates about 20% of the claims. As an actuary, I can tell you about 2 or 3% of the population creates about 15 to 20%, so it's in that same range. So based upon this research at the Employee Benefit Research Institute, 1% of group plan members generate 20% of total health care costs. It is this population that would medically benefit the most from the impaired health support plans. We're not going to throw them aside. We're not going to dismiss them. We're not going to give them poor coverage. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to help the people who need the most help. Give them the information, the financial support, the shared savings, actually pay attention to their own health, get them back on their feet, hopefully to full recovery so they can be productive members of society, be productive members of their for their employer, be good family members, because if you don't have your health, you really don't have much of anything. Your human capital, as we try to call it, has really gone down to almost zero, if not zero. If you have poor health, you really can't do much else in this life. So health is more important than most people will give credit to because we're now seeing with coronavirus, you may be totally disabled and you may get something that actually dies you as you die prematurely. So moving this population to the impaired health support coverage will lower individual policy and small group contract costs by a similar amount, about 15 to 20%. So personalized health insurance recognizes the importance of choice, does not mandate plan designs. Uh, Under personalized health insurance, lower cost options are going to be available to meet the varying needs of the different plan participants. So I want to take another break here, and I want to come back, and I want to talk about 
more about this cost issue, which is so important. It's one of the three items that we're going to be talking about uh, the rest of this week and in the next week about how effective the concept of personalized health insurance is and how it meets some of the challenges and tests that people might put to health insurance reform. So hang with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to WebRadio.com. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. We've been talking about various ways to change the marketplace out there, to create free market choices. We've been talking about the secrets of health insurance reform, the things that people don't tell you, people behind the scenes that are working generally against the interests of the consumer, generally against the interests of the patient. So to your total surprise, maybe, there are a lot of forces out there trying to maintain the status quo and not give you the choices and options that would benefit you and your family. We've been talking about a concept called personalized health insurance. And the reason I like to call it personalized health insurance is because you are unique. Each of your family members are unique in their needs. They should have the right to get the type of health insurance so they can access the health care that they need. It ought to be different for each person, each group of employees, every employer. There really ought to be differences in what they have available and what they can access. One of the key issues around personalized health insurance that we've been talking about is this idea of stratifying the population on the basis of their risk. People who are healthy, doing healthy behaviors, monitoring their diet, their exercise, keeping up with their biometrics of blood pressure, cholesterol, nicotine use, body mass index, A1C, They ought to be able to gather together as a group themselves. They ought to be segmented and stratified so that people who are doing better in terms of their health, following their doctor's orders when they are sick, following their treatment plans, doing the right things, they ought to be able to be clustered together and their premiums would be lower as a group. And people who are not well, for whatever reason, whether it's genetic, maybe it's something they were born with at birth, maybe it's an accident, a sickness, a malady of life that just happened upon them, maybe it was bad choices that they made, whatever it was, they are at higher risk. And they should be able to be segmented out because they need real help. And, you know, in this coronavirus environment that we've been in, maybe we're starting to recognize that. Because the people who are most vulnerable to coronaviruses are the older people who have comorbid conditions. And so what we keep talking about in many ways is to segment that population out, not to dismiss them, not to get rid of them, but to give them the extra protection they need, the extra help and support, sending people out to help clean up nursing homes where they are most vulnerable using the National Guard to go out and help that population, uh, to monitor people coming in, to monitor the caregivers that come in, to be able to monitor the residents of nursing homes to be sure that they aren't infected and spreading it around. 
So the idea of segmenting different populations to give them the support they need um, is nothing new, but we really haven't done it in the full healthcare environment where it could really help individuals get cheaper insurance, less expensive insurance by making that those clusters for healthy people and creating a real focus on helping the people who need the most help, who are sickest and have multiple conditions, need the kind of information and support to follow the doctor's orders, to know what's going on, be able to get them to the right resources at the right time with the right providers. That's what this is all about and why I like the term personalized because it does meet the needs of the individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all because we are very different in our health status across this country. So if we do that as a group, then the activities of the group, the general activities, the common characteristics of the group will allow us then to have a lower cost of health care for that entire group. Now, there's no problem with having different costs for people who want different types of products, whether it's a high deductible, a low deductible, an HSA, an HMO. Those will have different, different premiums for people within the same cluster of risks. That shouldn't be a problem. But there's two ways to save money, since we can't control the actual cost of the medical care very conveniently, because we've already discussed that in the earlier sessions this hour, how there's too many people working behind the scenes uh, for individual consumers to have an impact. But what individual consumers can have an impact on is the utilization of services and the recognition that others of like mind are also taking control and not over-utilizing services and doing things that can reduce the number of hospital visits, reduce number of doctor visits, reduce the number of prescription drugs. So that's the way the group can keep premiums down. The other way is that each individual can take actions that meet some characteristic. If you have a health savings account and there are rewards and incentives that are available, you can get rewards and incentives that will help your individual Costs, whether it's covering uh, the deductible, the co-insurance, whether it's having some other changes, maybe it's rewards and incentives outside the plan that you're getting for um, sharing in the savings when you're doing the right things and saving whoever the risk-bearing entity is, whether it's an insurance company, whether it's uh, an employer, whether it's a government. So personalized health insurance recognizes that health care can be financed through at least three mechanisms, and those mechanisms are not fully appreciated by politicians and the existing environment and discussions around health care reform. The first is insurance premiums. That's pretty clear and obvious, but that's what the focus tends to be on. That's what Obamacare's focus was on, the insurance premiums. But that's only one way to finance health care. The second way is savings, whether that's taxable savings or non-taxable savings. Non-taxable would be the use of health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements and flexible spending accounts. So there's a number of legal ways that you can have some non-taxable funds that you can save to cover the deductibles and the co-insurance, etc. And so you can have a higher deductible plan with lower premiums as you accumulate savings to cover that differential, if that's what your choice is. And there's a third way that is completely misunderstood 
a third way that is completely dismissed by many people because they just don't understand and appreciate and reflect on the actual experience and success of the third area, which is incentives and rewards. Now, many people clump those two terms together uh, when they really mean just one. Uh, I think of incentives as something that's provided up front before an activity occurs to incentivize you to do that activity, and rewards is something after you've met a standard going through a program or accomplish some task, you get a reward at the end. But be that as it may, many companies just include this all under the term incentives, whether they mean before or after an activity. Now, Obamacare mainly focused on premiums to finance health insurance. That was the main goal. Personalized health insurance recognizes that if we are unleashed from the Obamacare restrictions, the private market will develop products and services with premiums, savings, and incentives, providing customers with lower-cost financing options that meet their needs. That's what we're really trying to develop in this personalized health insurance. So personalized health insurance is a wide array of choices and options but it's developed on the basis of risk identification and stratification of people into a category or a pooling of risks across people of like nature. Now, insurance is all about sharing the costs one year to the next. I'm sick this year and you help pay for me. You're sick next year and I help pay for you. But in general, if we're doing the right things, our costs are going to be lower. And so I ought to be able to associate with people of like mind and like characteristics. And it's not to segment out or discriminate against people who who don't do that or are sick with diabetes or asthma, congestive heart failure. The idea is the segmentation of those people also benefits them. So it's a win-win situation. For the higher risk people, they will be given the focus of a lot of treatment and care and services and information and support. And also the ability that if they stabilize themselves, they can get rewards and incentives as well. A stabilized diabetic is a lot less costly than one who's not. So somebody who is following their doctor's orders, changing their diet, can save a lot of money, and that diabetic should be able to get rewards and incentives to lower the overall cost of -of out-of-pocket expenses, for example, that they might have. So everybody wins if we can stratify by risk. Unfortunately, that's not always politically correct. Some politicians think that that's being discriminatory against um, other people, but it's really not. It's actually benefiting everybody. You know, they think of it as discriminating against the people who are at high risk. But you could also make the argument, if you flip it around and just think about differentiation instead of discrimination, the people at the low end aren't getting the same kinds of rewards and incentives and information that the people at the high end are. Well, you know, they're not being discriminated against because we're not giving them the focus. They don't need it. If we give our resources to the people who need it, we'll all come out better. Account-based plans really put control in the hands of consumers. Account-based plans like health savings accounts support a consideration of rewards and incentives for behavioral change, and that's what you're really trying to do with any kind of reform. So the federal law should be changed to allow tax-advantaged health savings accounts on any plan, not just a legally defined high-deductible health plan. So consumers willing to make good health and health care choices should be able to share in the savings generated. Rewards and incentives 
should be provided under individual and small group plans that can be used to moderate any deductibles and coinsurance. Personalized health insurance expands the ability for insurers to offer multiple plan designs and provide financial incentives to plan members who are compliant with healthy initiatives. That makes a lot of sense that we give rewards and incentives to help reinforce and encourage people to continue with their good behaviors. Now, one last thing before we sign off on this section. There are a number of outdated state laws that prevent the small employers from taking advantage of rewards and incentives that large employers and self-insured plans are already showing success with. Outdated rebate laws exist that need to be eliminated. They exist because in the past, when a policy was sold, many times the insurance agent would give money back to the individual for having bought the policy. And in many times it was terminated after that exchange of funds. So laws were passed that said you cannot have a financial incentive after the purchase of a health insurance policy. Well, those days are passed, and now rebate laws should be eliminated so that we can do rewards and incentives for small groups and individuals just like we do for large employers. It's extremely critical. We need to have that reinforcement that goes along with rewards and incentives. And they can be anything. They could be merchandise, gift cards, debit cards, premium discounts, HSA contributions, co-payment reductions, lower employee contributions. There's lots of ways to reward and incentivize people. And so we should be able to do that. And that would lower the cost by another 20%, different from the 20% from segmenting and stratifying the risk. The people who are at good risk then create more savings because they're following the doctor's orders. So let's stop here, take another quick break, and we'll be back and wrap up this week's session on the secrets of health insurance reform. We'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it, and you'll love having one in your shop. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio for our final session this week. I hope you're learning something about how we actually could get coverage insurance that ultimately opens up the doors for the right kind of health care that you need. There really are things that you can do and structures that you can promote and that you can advocate for as we go through these designs and ideas on personalized health insurance that allows for a stratification of risk so that both the low and the high stratifications of risk can get the help and care that they need, get the insurance products that meet their their needs at the time that they need it. So any kind of health reform, there are really three major tests. And we've covered one of three. I want to try to cover some of a second item in this last segment. 
the three areas are one, lowering the cost of care. And we just, in the last segment, went through a lot of detail about the cost of care. Actually, in the last two segments. What I want to do here in this segment is talk about the increased access to medical care that personalized health insurance would provide. And probably next week we'll get into how all this really improves the quality of care. So let's talk about access to care. Does personalized health insurance really improve access to care? Because we're talking about better insurance, the insurance that you want and need, and how to finance care. So does it really open up access uh, to care? Well, the purpose of any insurance is typically identified as purchasing protection before an onset of a problem. So we're talking about buying insurance. But in certain circumstances, you can't buy insurance when there's an imminent threat. For example, you can't buy hurricane insurance when a named storm is on your way and you live on the coast of Florida or the east coast of the United States. An imminent potential claim from a known pre-existing condition generally precludes the purchase of insurance. But access to buying health insurance is different. Pre-existing conditions are prevalent in most of us. Some individuals are born with a pre-existing condition, and over time many of us will suffer from accidents and illnesses. Others will acquire chronic conditions. Still others must deal with the normal disabilities of aging. Pre-Obamacare, health insurance companies used an analysis of medical records and policy application information to profile individuals or groups seeking health coverage. Insurers wanted to determine the extent of any pre-existing sickness or illness. This is called risk selection. So they were stratifying risk, much like we're saying we need to do for personalized health insurance. But personalized health insurance is an entirely different stratification of risk with an entirely different purpose, with an entirely different outcome and intent. Pre-Obamacare, the stratification of risk was with insurance companies deciding who could get insurance and who can't. We're not talking about that kind of an approach with personalized health insurance. With personalized health insurance, we're talking about a risk selection so that we can get the right policies and the right coverage and the right information and the right health care to the people who need it. So in the past, health insurers had the unilateral power to deny individual applicants or groups access to purchasing health coverage. They can just turn you down, almost for no reason. You never know. Many insurers abuse this power specifically in the individual marketplace by cherry-picking only very healthy consumers. It was prevalent to some degree, but much less so in that small group marketplace. It was mainly individual policies that where there was a lot of cherry-picking going on. These two frequent underwriting abuses increased the number of uninsured. Individuals were especially disadvantaged if they tried to leave a job where they had employer-sponsored coverage. Buying an individual policy was difficult, as insurers limited access by using the most extreme underwriting risk selection process. In general, limiting access to health insurance limits access to medical care. Let me say that again. 
Limiting access to health insurance limits access to medical care. Personalized health insurance assures access to affordable health insurance for all Americans. Pre-Obamacare, a study done then by the American Health Insurance Plans, showed 83.9% went through the medical underwriting process and resulted in an offer of coverage. So making an application didn't mean you automatically got rejected. In fact, the vast majority were accepted. A significant number of applications for individual health insurance never even made it to the medical underwriting process. The individuals backed out. They found coverage someplace else, so they terminated coverage here. Some additional information was requested. They either didn't want to do it or they they just, for whatever reason, let it fall by the wayside and they didn't get coverage. Overall, approximately 16.1% of total applications received were either not processed because, for example, they lack citizenship or were denied for non-medical reasons such as failure to provide information. For those applications that went through the medical review, and that's what we're talking about, medical review when we're talking about pre-existing conditions, 87.3% were actually offered coverage. Whatever pre-existing condition they had wasn't significant enough to turn them down. Or there was a slight um, upgrade in the premium, or there was a slight moderation in the coverage, or there was a delay before coverage for that condition was fully implemented. Now, of course, those are average numbers across all applicants, so the acceptance rates varied by age. For example, insurers accepted 95% for people under age 18, so it was almost universal under age 18, but only 71% for people age 60 to 64. So still a pretty significant majority of people age 60 to 64, just under the Medicare qualifications were accepted for insurance when they made an application. Now, older folks are more likely to be rejected for pre-existing conditions. They they, they submit the information, it gets applied, but that rejection, with the acceptance of 71%, which means a rejection of 29%, were mainly for pre-existing conditions. Over all the ages, only 2 or 3% were truly uninsurable, yet more than almost 13% were rejected for coverage. So it's this critical 12 to 13% that must be empowered to access affordable coverage they need and to cover any pre-existing condition that had previously been used to deny them coverage. That's the focus and the value of personalized health insurance. Those critical 12% do not come from any one set of employer plans or any particular sector of society. Many are working for small businesses that don't offer insurance. Many work multiple part-time jobs. Or many are self-employed. Mostly they are hardworking individuals and families seeking to provide for and pay for their own health insurance. Many find themselves in a situation where they cannot obtain health insurance at any price. So personalized health insurance addresses these issues so that no one now covered is dropped from coverage and no new persons are left without access to covering pre-existing conditions. So access to care is the real important question. Can we get access to care if we have 
health insurance that works for us. If we have a guarantee that we can get insurance that gives us access to care, not just a card. Many want health insurance reform, but really what they've been arguing for is to give everybody a card like a Medicaid card. Well, Medicaid doesn't accept, isn't accepted at a lot of places. About 30 or 40% of physicians don't even accept a Medicaid card. Why? Because the government pays so little on Medicaid. They pay much less than they pay for Medicare. And Medicare is a low reimbursement. Many people who are paying on the private schedule, a negotiated fee schedule, pay more than the average because they have to make up for, there's a cost shifting that goes on, they have to make up for the lower payments that the government is reimbursing doctors and hospitals under Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid is the worst. So when they talk about this expansion of Medicaid across the country, many people think that's great. Let's give everybody a Medicaid card. Gives them access to great benefits. Well, the card says they're great benefits, but the reality is they don't get to access that care. I don't want people just to get an insurance card that says they've got some kind of coverage when the reality is they can't ever get to that coverage because the doctors they want, the services they want, are not getting paid enough so that when they try to go to a doctor, the doctor won't accept it. Many doctors today, as you know, are getting out of the business. Many doctors are retiring and we're not replacing doctors with enough new physicians coming out of school to fill that void, that gap, especially in the primary care area. Many areas just really need some primary care doctors in the rural areas and even in the urban areas. Everybody wants to be a specialist. And if everybody's a specialist, you got to go to a cardiologist, an oncologist, an otolaryngologist, whatever it is, they get paid more because they're specialists. But the reality is that the first access to care is through your primary care doctor, your family physician, your internist. Those are the people that you usually deal with as a first line of access to care. And if they can't deal with the common issues the lesser complications, they will refer you to the specialist, and that's appropriate. But if everybody is a specialist, you don't have enough people being that gatekeeper, that that police officer that's guiding you in one direction or another, that person who you can rely on, the person when you go into a hospital and all the specialists are taking care of you, you've got a primary care physician that you can rely on that is giving you the right guidance and direction and giving you explanations of what's going on. Many times... They are not the attending physician in a hospital, but they are your connection to the hospital world. They've given you the guidance and the direction of where to go. So unless you've got good health insurance, it's unless you've been given the options to purchase unique coverage that you want, the personalized health insurance, you won't get that kind of access and have that patient-to-physician relationship that's so critical. That's why personalized is the key word in all this, that you're able to buy the coverage you want that gives you the access to the physicians and the providers you want. In today's world, under Obamacare, you don't have your choice of physicians. Many times there are very small networks, very closed networks. In order to keep the cost down, they've chosen the doctors that maybe are new out of school, 
hard building a practice, and so they're willing to negotiate lower rates. As a consequence, you get lower premiums, but you really don't get the best care that you would want. You may don't get, maybe not don't get to your doctor. You know the famous lie for Obamacare is if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Well, we know that that didn't occur. If you want your doctor, you can keep your doctor under personalized health insurance because that's the way it's designed and structured so that you get the choice, not some bureaucrat in Washington that says, here are the only choices you have. Or we're going to set up some rules in Washington, and then the insurance companies respond by saying, well, the only way I can make this really affordable is to get the cheapest doctors out there that I can that may be new out of school and are not the ones that um, most customers really want. But we're going to force them into that if they if they want a lower premium. And many people have to choose those because that's the only thing that they can actually afford. There ought to be more affordable options. So access to care under personalized health insurance is a reality. Whereas today, it's not a reality. It's an illusion. It's smoke and mirrors that you have access to care in many cases because you have a insurance card, but you really don't have a card that gets you connected to a primary care doctor or have access to the specialist that you want, only what the insurance company allows you to have. So I hope that answers two of the three major areas. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk about the quality of care because that is extremely important, both the mental, physical, social, and spiritual quality of care. And that's going to take more time, so I didn't want to try to force that into this week. So cost of care we've covered, access to care, and then the third critical item is quality of care. So come back next week and we're going to be talking about the quality of care under personalized health insurance and much that I think you'll find interesting as we move into health insurance reform, as this election year continues on and healthcare is likely to be a major part of the debate. See you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.